You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thanks, team, for leading us this morning, and uh, uh, welcome to you all. Uh, My name is Keith. I'm a pastor here at good old Mission Creek Alliance Church, Uh, and if you're uh, new uh, here, we just want to welcome you in particular. Uh, I don't know about you, but in life, I want to be part of something real. I want to be part of something authentic, not, not some veneer, not, not something false or, or, or fake or, or put on. I think in life, we, we recognize authenticity when we see it in another person. Am I right? That we can sniff out when, when, when someone is uh, full of it, as they say. <laughs> And so maybe you're new here this morning, or you decided to, to kind of uh, step into a building uh, of people that you don't know, and I trust this morning that what you have experienced already is a room full of people who are real with God. We're not putting on a mask or pretending to be something that we're not. We are broken people who have encountered the love of Jesus, and he's making us whole. He's making us new. And you hear it in the songs that we sing. You hear it in the voices that are lifting a song of praise to a God who who made us and loves us. Oh, and it's really real. And we want to be part of something like that. And and maybe you have never really encountered uh, the love of God or or felt loved by by a God who made you before. I, I encourage you to stick with it because he loves you and there's a reason you're here And I pray this morning that you would know him above all others this morning. And so, all that to say, I'm thankful to be in a room full of people who who are real with one another, who who are pouring out our hearts to the God who has made us whole through the person of Jesus. Uh, We've been preaching through the, the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm gonna move on in chapter 18 in just a moment. But before I do, let me say this. Uh, Author Mark Buchanan, he's noted that whenever Jesus said or did anything, three different spirits attended. The first, of course, was the Holy Spirit. Whenever Jesus, wherever he went, there were signs of the Holy Spirit's presence and his power, calming the seas, forgiving sins, loosing chains, healing hearts and minds and bodies. But another spirit often awoke wherever Jesus, or or his church for that matter, wherever Jesus or his church were on the move, another spirit. The Bible calls this spirit evil with a capital E. The kind of spirit that seeks to destroy all that God has made good. An evil one who, who lies and deceives, who's vicious and malicious and and predatory. A spirit that enslaves both saint and scoundrel without prejudice. But there is a third spirit that's often awoken when when Jesus and his church are on the move. And, And the third spirit is often more noxious than the second. In part because it's the spirit that we are least 
likely to recognize. And I am, of course, speaking about a religious spirit. This religious spirit is is so dangerous because it comes in camouflage. It's evil that, that masquerades as goodness. The religious spirit always poses as its opposite, keeper of virtue, upholder of purity, protector of doctrine, defender of truth. But the spirit, we should note, is anything but a keeper or an upholder or a protector or defender. It's anything but but virtuous or pure or right or true. Wherever Jesus and his church are on the move, so is the religious spirit. The spirit is at work in the senior who attends church every Sunday but grumbles when a teenager wears a ball cap during worship. The spirit is at work in the mother who who meets with Jesus in her morning devotions and then tells her child to clean the room because the Bible says you must honor your parents. The religious spirit is at work in the young man who, who has learned a little bit of theology on YouTube and has thus taken up this crusade to correct everyone else who's obviously a heretic. It's at work in in, in the socially active Christian who who looks down their nose at the pew-sitting Christian who is more heavenly-minded than they are earthly good. The Spirit is at work in the teenage girl who can recite John 3.16 in one honest breath, but then use her next to gossip about the girls in her class. And of course, the Spirit is at work in the pastor, who whispers judgments about other pastors and their churches should the opportunity arise. Wherever Jesus and his church are on the move, so is the religious spirit. And now, it's interesting that of all the spirits stirred to attention by Jesus, it's this last spirit that he has the hardest time dealing with. I mean, Jesus wasn't troubled much by an evil spirit, was he? A single word is all he needed to sort out the likes of them. But the religious spirit, The religious spirit proves much harder to cast out. It's more insidious. It's it's much more stubborn. In part, I think it's because people who are drunk on this spirit don't even know it. (laughs) They don't recognize their need for deliverance. You see, there are some sins that need no explanation, (laughs) No one needs to be convinced that that murder is wrong, right? And a husband doesn't wake up in bed with another woman and say to himself, golly gee, I had no idea that cheating on my my wife was a sin. Of course not. Some sins need no explanation. They're, They're obvious. They're unshakable. They live with you at every turn. But the sin of a religious spirit's not like that. It flies under the radar like a stealth bomber. It goes undetected even by its operator. 
which is what makes the sin of, of the religious spirit so dangerous. Those who live under its spell don't even know. And so Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable to help us see what we need to see, and it's in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Turn there with me. How are we doing so far? <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord, because it gives life. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We know that your words give life. And so I, I pray this morning, Jesus, that, that as we wade into this territory, as we surrender this spirit to you, we pray that you would bring life and grace and love and joy, because that is what you have come to do, to release us from all that keeps us in darkness and to bring a wave of your grace, love, and joy to the world, to the people around us. And so, Jesus, have your way in us. We want to be your church in every sense of the word, and it's something only you can do. And so, Spirit, do what only you can do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... The first question for me uh, is, who is this parable directed toward, right? It's, I think, an important question for us to ask. Who is Jesus directing this parable at? Because, well, it's an important question to ask if we want to understand what he's saying. And look, verse 9 tells us. It says, to some, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. It's directed to some. But the question is, who are the some? If we want to get even more pointed, we could say, who are the some in this room? <laughs> Me. Perhaps it's helpful in answering the question, who, Jesus, do you really want to hear this parable? Who is it? Who are the some? Maybe this is helpful for you. And let's have a little bit of fun. We can, we can have a little bit of fun here. So first, I wonder if when you heard the parable just now, how, did you think, you know, wow, this one's for me. 
Jesus, I know you want to deal with, with my own religious spirit. Did anyone feel that this morning? Anyone want to put up their hands? Don't worry, I'm not expecting anyone to put up their hands. That's, uh, maybe, maybe you heard it and you thought, Jesus, this is for me uh, this morning, and I'm thankful we're talking about this text. Uh, and so I want to say if this was your response, then yes, you're one of the some. The Spirit of God is, is stirring in you. But, but here's the thing. I, I wonder if when you heard this parable this, this morning, you thought, wow, I really wish my husband were here for this one. <laughs> right? Right? Because sometimes that's, that's what we think, because this one is certainly for him. You know, anyone want to put their hand up? Anyone feel that? <laughs> This morning, no one did, because we have marital counseling uh, after the service, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but, but maybe it wasn't your husband that came to mind, maybe it was someone else, let's be honest here, regardless of who it was, if someone else came to mind, I, I do have some bad news for you, <laughs> and, and the bad news is this parable is most certainly for you, right? Because when we hear it and we think it's for someone else, it's sort of like being the, 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 the Pharisee in the story and saying, Lord Jesus, thank you that you didn't make me like the person I thought of because uh, this is for them. No, it's for me. And the, the point is that, that while the parable is directed to some, it's applicable to all of us, to every single one of us. And so the invitation this morning is to hear Jesus' words both as God's challenge and his warning, to deal with that religious spirit that from time to time resides in each one of us. It resides in, in everyone. And I believe that God wants to do a work in his church today. I mean, he always does, doesn't he? But specifically, I believe God desires to use his Holy Spirit to bring healing to our religious one, to yours and to mine. And the parable, it begins with, with two men who go up to the temple to pray. And now, if you remember, last week's parable at the beginning of chapter 18 uh, was a parable about prayer. And in it, we, we learned from, from this widow, this, this poor, marginalized woman, about how to pray. She was the hero about how to pray. And it was this call to pray persistently and, and to not give up. Here, Jesus is teaching us about prayer, and it's these two men who go up to the temple to pray. They both have the same goal. The goal is to, to meet with the living God, to stand in his presence. And we're told that one is a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we have developed a, a rather unfortunate perception of Pharisees in the Bible because we hear the label and, and we assume that, that the Pharisees are, are all the bad people. Right? But, but as a whole, we have to understand that they really weren't. They, were, they, they certainly weren't in the eyes of the people who Jesus told this story to because a Pharisee, by, by all accounts, they were a religious and a moral success in their society. The man in Jesus' parable, he would have been seen as someone virtuous, someone upstanding, someone who took God seriously, someone who actually was willing to sacrifice a great deal in order to follow God's ways. And we see this a little bit in, in the prayer that he offers in, in, in verse 12, or is it verse 11? It's one of the verses. 
where the man says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. You see, this was a man who, who went the extra mile in his devotion to, toward the Lord, in his service toward the Lord. Fasting. First, fasting was part of the, the Old Testament law. It was done once a year on the Day of Atonement. God, God instructed his people to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the man's devotion in the story, the Pharisee, it didn't end there because we're told that he actually fasted not once a year but, but twice a week. He was serious about God. And we're told that he gave a tithe of everything he took in. Now, a tithe simply refers to 10%. God instructed his people to give 10% of, of a certain of their crops and livestock as an offering to the Lord. And now, a tithe is a good spiritual practice. It's, it's something that many of us in this room participate and practice today. We give generously back to God because he's blessed us with everything that we have. But this man is saying that he doesn't simply tithe the required things. He tithes on all he brings in, even the things that God does not require. See, he's willing to feel the pinch because of his devotion to the Lord. This is a good thing. And the point is that the Pharisees, they were earnest for God. And the parable isn't about writing off an entire group of religious leaders and hypocrites as hypocrites and villains. And if we think it is, we've missed the point. We haven't looked inside ourselves. Rather, what Jesus wants us to see is this thin line between our devotion to God and a religious spirit. In other words, this Pharisee helps us to see the things that sometimes reside in our own hearts. That is, of course, if we're willing to look. And so here's what the Pharisee re reveals to us about the religious spirit. First, we're told, at the beginning of verse 11, that he stood by himself to pray. That's what the religious spirit does. It isolates it separates itself. It divides people into categories of the good ones and the bad ones. You see, this holy man moved away from the unholy crowd because he thought his status before God put him in a different category than other people. You see, the, the religious spirit loves to cloister away. It loves the holy huddle because Purity loves company. But the problem is, however, the people with the religious spirit, they rarely find others who live up to their standards of purity. And so they stand by themselves to pray. And I wonder, does this describe your life of faith? Does it describe the way you live your life beyond the walls of this church? Does it describe your experience of church? Do you divide people into categories, into good and bad, holy and unholy, pure and impure, deserving and undeserving, responsible and irresponsible, true Christians 
false Christians. It's a religious spirit. The Pharisee stood by himself to pray, and he said these words, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Now, the truth be told, this man probably wasn't a thief or a swindler, nor did he likely cheat on his wife. What he is praying is, is, is technically correct. You see, we're not dealing with a case of hypocrisy here, saying one thing but being or doing another. We're not dealing with a ca case of hypocrisy, though to be sure, hypocrisy is a symptom of the religious spirit. But what we have here isn't hypocrisy. It's flat-out pride. It's arrogance. You see, when we look a little closer at the man's prayer, his prayer begins as, as a common prayer that we actually find throughout uh, the, the Psalms in particular. We, we find them in the, throughout the Bible, but particularly we find them all over in the Psalms. And the kind of prayer that this man is praying is called a psalm of thanksgiving or praise. And these prayers, they all have a common structure. They, they typically have two parts. They begin in part one with a word of thanksgiving or a word of praise to God. And then they are followed by part two, which is a word about God's character or something that he has done in order to merit praise. So two parts to the thanksgiving and, 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 and praise psalm. Part one is the word of praise and thanksgiving, and part two is what God has done in order to receive that praise and thanksgiving. Psalm 92 is a good, is a good example. It begins with the psalmist praying, It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. It's a word of praise and thanksgiving. It's part one. But then it says, for you make me glad by your deeds. Lord, I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Do you see how it's working there? The second part is the reason for thanksgiving. Because of God's deeds, because of the works of his hands, God has done something that's worthy of praise. Now let's look at the Pharisees' Thanksgiving psalm again. It begins with part one, of course, Thanksgiving, like you would expect, but look at part two, the reason for his praise. It's not because of something God has done. It's because of something the man has done. He prays, thank you, God, that I, that I am not like other people. See, in his prayer, the Pharisee substitutes God's actions for his own. He's, he's not thankful for something he sees in the character or action of God, but, but something he sees in himself. It's pure pride and arrogance. It's self-righteousness. You see, the religious spirit tends to take credit for the work that God has done. It makes us think more highly of ourselves than we should. It, it sees holiness as a product of our own effort rather than a work of the Spirit in our life. You might say 
that when this man prays, he has one eye on his own success and one eye on the tax collector's failures and no eyes on God. Which highlights another tactic of the religious spirit. It compares and criticizes. This is perhaps the easiest way to recognize the Spirit's work in us. We look to another person's vices, and we compare them to our own virtues. Have you ever done that? You notice the worst things in other people and compare them to the best things in ourselves. And then we make some kind of analysis about where they stand in life and with God. Uh, and it's no wonder we come out on top every time. <laughs> do you ever do that? Compare apples to oranges? Compare their vices with your virtues? And then feel good about your place in the eyes of God based off of this self-assessment? It's the religious spirit. And church... Whenever you catch yourself criticizing others, or whenever you hear somebody who constantly criticizes others, we should recognize it as a manifestation of this spirit. The religious spirit constantly compares and it always criticizes. You know, as I, I was preparing this message uh, at a coffee shop, uh, a man walked in uh, with his young daughter, and, and she was about four years old. And, and, and I took notice of a few things as, as, as they took up the table next to me. Uh, the man, had, he was wearing a black-brimmed hat, and he had this large silver chain around his neck. And I realized, as I reflected afterwards, that in that moment, I was beginning to make all these little micro-judgments uh, about him. I, I mean, we, we all do this, right? Like someone kind of walks in and you just notice, and it's, it's, it's not like you're, you're consciously making judgments. They kind of just happen. It's, it's automatic. It's like a reflex. And his attire signaled something to me. And, and then I, I noticed his daughter and, and, and how she was dressed and how she carried a toy phone in her hand, and, and how she behaved in the coffee shop. Again, they were these innoxious micro-judgments. You're getting a window into my heart, church. And you know why I feel safe to share it? Because I know it's a window into your own, too. We've all been the Pharisee. And as time went on in that coffee shop, I, I noticed these things happening in my heart because I was preparing for this sermon. <laughs> then I noticed some writing on the man's hat. On the very front, it said, worship. Was this man a follower of Jesus? And then he turned his head, and I, I saw some more words printed on his hat. And it said, product of grace. Turns out that this man in his hat knew more about God in that moment than the pastor did. 
Because that's it, isn't it? That's what separates the Pharisee from the tax collector in the parable. One was a product of God's grace. The other was simply a product of their own imagination, (laughs) a product of their own self-righteousness. You see, the tax collector, like the man in the coffee shop, knew he, he, he could only become something good in the world if he was a product of God's grace and love. The tax collector knew his vices. He didn't hide them. He couldn't hide them. Everyone in town knew his vices because tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were like these religious sellouts. They had aligned themselves with the Roman Empire, and they made money off of the backs of their fellow Jews by taxing them unjustly. And so this tax collector, the text tells us, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and he said, God Have mercy on me, a sinner. There is no appeal to his religious status. There is no grand virtue that lifts him up to God. It's simply a man who knows he doesn't measure up to God's perfection. And his prayer is key here. We, We can't miss this. He prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the word for mercy here is the Greek word for atonement. The prayer is better understood as the man saying, God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. He is not asking God simply to forgive him the wrong in his life, though that's a good thing. He's asking for more than forgiveness because he's asking for God to take away his impurity and to make him pure again. He's asking to be reconnected to the holy God because that's what atonement is. It's more than forgiveness. It's God setting right all that sin has set wrong. Here's an example. Imagine a colleague of yours steals $100 from your wallet. Now, I know we don't carry cash anymore, so maybe they take your bank card, whatever. They, 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 they take $100 from your wallet. But a few days later, your, your, your colleague that you work with, they have a change of heart. They confess to you, but they explain that the money has been spent and they can't pay it back. And being kind, uh, of course, you forgive them. But here's the thing. You're still out 100 bucks. Not only that, now there's this giant chasm that's opened up in the relationship between you and your colleague. And even though you've offered forgiveness, the question remains, who will repay the debt? And who will be able to bridge the chasm that, that has sunk into your relationship? Well, that's what atonement does. It repays the debt of sin that we are unable to pay. And it reconciles us to God. It closes the chasm. It restores the relationship. 
The tax collector prays that God would make an atonement. He prays for precisely what Jesus came and did on the cross. Jesus willingly paid the debt of our sin. And he built a bridge to reconcile unholy people to a holy God. And it's pure grace. We've done nothing to earn it. We don't deserve it. Yet, God gave his life away so that we might be included in his life. We are sinners saved by grace. You see, the man in the coffee shop knew precisely what the tax collector in the parable knew, that he was a product of grace. The grace of God that comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ who makes an atonement, who pays our debt and reconciles us to God the Father. And friends, we can make no mistake about it. We all need atonement, every single one of us. We live in this, this culture that, that likes to sweep our transgressions under the rug like, like they're no big deal, like, like they don't really hurt anyone. Um, but the truth of the matter is, God has made us to reflect his goodness. And we've all fallen short of his goodness, whether that be through our words or our deeds or, or the meditations of our, our, our inner thoughts. Or maybe it's the things that, that we have failed to do that are good. We've all fallen short of his goodness. We've tainted what God intends for holiness. We've amassed a debt. We've created a chasm. And we all need atonement. And coming to see that, that's the cure for a religious spirit. When we see our need for Jesus' rescue, when we take a look at what's really inside, when we, when we lift up the carpet and see what's really there, we can now fix both our eyes squarely on Jesus. We can trust our lives to Him and Him alone. And when we do, He makes us a product of grace. And He casts out the religious spirit. Friends, we all have a choice to make today. It's a choice that we have to make every day that God graciously gives breath to our lungs. You can either live out your Christian life like the Pharisee with a religious spirit, self-righteous, looking down on others, clinging to God with your own acts of piety. <laughs> but friends... This only leads you and the people around you into empty religion, and it's death. Or we can live like the tax collector, a product of grace, an undeserving sinner saved through Christ's atoning sacrifice. And that's life and beauty and what the world really needs to see. Which way will you choose today? I invite you to pray with me.
God. Make atonement for me, a sinner.